leading us now by your word. Father, give us humble hearts this morning as you teach us and lead us through your words. Help us to listen and to obey as we long all the more and as you keep us for that great future when we'll be with Christ in glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in England, increasingly, people love watching soaps. I don't know if they're popular here in Malaysia. They're really, really popular in England. I haven't quite worked them out, but basically what happens, people expect everyone to watch it. And they do. I find it genuinely amazing. And one of the things about soaps is that they always break their episodes in the middle of a story, don't they? That's just what they do. It's how they get you to watch next week. And the cheeky thing is that's actually what we did last week. We looked at half of what is very definitely one story in John chapter 6. We saw two astonishing miracles last week, if you were here. Jesus feeding 10,000 people, probably, with a small boy's packed lunch. And then Jesus walking across the surface of a lake and saving his people. Extraordinary. And we saw that that revealed him to be the great redeemer, to be the rescuer that God has sent to save his people. But there was a pretty big question that we left hanging last week. How is he going to do it? Not only that, but we also actually left the narrative, didn't we? Right in the middle, if you were following us through John chapter 6. The crowd, who had been fed by Jesus at lunchtime the previous day, well, they'd gone all the way around the other side of the lake and they'd found him. They'd walked up to him triumphantly. They'd found him. They were really pleased. And they asked him a question, but he got at their motives, didn't he? Right behind their motives. And he said, you've only actually come because you want another free lunch. And he caused them then to work for the food that endures to eternal life. We stop there, but the Jews, the crowd, they're not going to let it rest. And the rest of our passage today is really a discussion between the crowd and Jesus. We find out in verse 59 that it's happening in the synagogue. We don't quite know how they get into the synagogue, but that's where the majority of this discussion happens. But if you're thinking it's a friendly discussion over a cup of coffee in Starbucks or something like that, we're in for a little bit of a surprise because it gets a bit heated. You see, we join the crowd this morning asking that pretty important question. What are the works of God that we're to do to get eternal life? It's a pretty fundamental question, isn't it? And the answer Jesus gives couldn't be much simpler, really. Believe. But how does believing get me eternal life? If you're a guest here this morning, then maybe you're wondering, how does trusting Jesus, how does that get me eternal life? Well, the answer, it's our first point this morning, is that Jesus is the living bread who gave his flesh. A lot of people today talk about belief very, very ethereally. People say to me, Rob, I wish I had your faith. It sounds so pious, so spiritual, but it's not really how the Bible talks about faith at all. Faith in the Bible is trust. And you can't just trust generally. You have to trust something, something specific, don't you? And that is very much the case in the Bible. Who are we to trust in? Well, look back to verse 29. The one who was sent by Jesus' Father, sent by God. Later in the passage, the one come down from the Father. 
But how is that going to help us? Well, amidst the next rumbling, disgruntled questions from the crowd, Jesus spots an opportunity to explain what he means. He picks up on their idea of the bread that they bring up this time, probably in the light of what happened the day before and the feeding that they received. The point Jesus wants to make is that the sent one is the true bread from heaven. Look at verse 33. That's where Jesus makes this point very clearly. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, bread seems pretty expensive here, as I've been looking around the shops. It doesn't seem to be particularly widely eaten. Rice, on the other hand, well, that's everywhere. My wife and I went to Tesco's in Churras on Friday night. We wanted to see what it was like. We were told it would be quite an interesting experience, and it was. And lots of the things felt very familiar. That's what was strange. Lots of the signs, lots of the badges. It all looked very much the same. But some things were a little bit different. One thing that really amused me was the rice aisle here. Stacked high with enormous bags of rice on both sides. Two whole aisles full. And I couldn't find the bread anywhere in the whole shop. Well, in England, I can tell you it would be the complete reverse. There's three or four bags of rice stuffed on a shelf somewhere at the back of the shop and two aisles full of bread rolls and bread loaves and more types of bread than you could possibly imagine. You see, just as rice would be the staple food here, the food that sustains life, the basic thing that we eat in every meal, so bread was the, is the basic food in England... And it would have been in Israel in Jesus' day. If you've been to Tesco Jerusalem, it would have looked a lot more like England's Tesco's than Malaysian Tesco's. Now, it's hard to grasp in our day and age how food can be that important. We live in a country where food moves around all the time. The concept of a famine breaking out here in Kuala Lumpur doesn't seem that likely. But there are large parts of the world, even today, where food could run out very quickly. Lots of the world where if the wheat harvest fails, wheat is how you make bread, well, people will die. You can't live without the fundamental food for life. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying the one come down from God is the bread of God. He means the one thing that sustains life. The one thing that you can't live without. Verse 33 the thing that gives life to the world. He draws a contrast with the manna in the wilderness, but his point is that that was only ever a picture of the reality, a model. It's a wonderful example of what we've just seen. The people are in the desert, and the point of being in the desert is there is no food, there's no vegetation, there's nothing to eat. The people are completely dependent on God to provide the food. They're completely dependent on the bread. And Jesus' point is it was just a model. He's not talking about literal bread. He's not talking any longer about lunch. He dealt with lunch yesterday on the hillside. Now he's moving on to talk about more important things. He's talking about true bread, the bread that sustains and provides for life. Now, it's probably pretty obvious to most of us sitting here that Jesus is talking about himself 
at this point in the dialogue. But it doesn't seem like the people sitting around him have really grasped that. So he has to spell it out for us in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, the reason he's the bread of life is that he is the one who came down from the Father. We've seen that in John so far. Look back at chapter 3 if you want to. We see it here very explicitly in verse 38 of our passage. And what that means is that Jesus is the one who sustains real life. He's the one without whom we will die. Look at the wonderful promise for those who do believe here. Whoever comes to me, well, he'll never hunger and he'll never thirst. She'll never hunger and she'll never thirst. He's saying that he is absolutely sufficient. Again, it's not like the manna in the wilderness. The manna in the wilderness, it only provided food for a certain amount of time. The people took the manna in the morning, they made the bread, it fed them, but they got hungry again pretty quickly. That was the problem. So more had to come the next day, and more, and more, and more, and more. It's why the people asked Jesus in verse 34, give us this bread always. But Jesus says it's not like that. If you eat this bread... Well, you'll never, ever be hungry again. You won't need anything else. But there's more to it than that. The argument carries on. Because Jesus isn't just the bread of life. He's the living bread. After a little excursus that we'll think about a little bit later on, Jesus comes back in verse 48 to talking about bread, if you notice. He restates his point. I am the bread of life. And again, he contrasts himself to the manna in the wilderness. It's his constant visual aid in this discussion. But this time, he's establishing a different point, you notice. You see, no matter how much of the manna the Israelites in the wilderness ate, well, they were still going to die. It's a pretty obvious point. Read the book of Exodus. They all die. There was nothing about the bread God provided then that gave eternal life. It just sustained us for this life. And Jesus is saying that he is the living bread. And that means, verse 50, that anyone who eats of him may not die. He explains what he means by this again further on in the discussion. Look down to verse 56. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's saying, as you come and eat this bread, as you feed on Jesus here, well, then you're united to Jesus. It's a glorious and wonderful truth. John elaborates, Jesus elaborates on it a lot more later on in John's Gospel, chapter 15, if you want to read about it later. But the reason he's mentioning it here, well, that comes in verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. It's picking up on what we saw a few weeks ago in John chapter 5, isn't it? That Jesus has life in himself as a gift from the Father. And you see the logic? If Jesus has life in himself, and we eat the bread and are united to Jesus, well then we have life because of him. 
But again, Jesus isn't finished there. I imagine at this time there are some people with a few questions, maybe a few hands raised, maybe lots of hands raised, people fighting to get Jesus' attention. But he doesn't want to be misunderstood. He wants to make his point. So verse 51, he says, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, he gets even more specific here. What really matters, what it's really all about, he says, verse 53, is my flesh and my blood. Now, the fact he lists them separately here is actually really significant. In the Bible, blood is where you find life. And that means where you find blood apart from flesh, well, that's death in the Bible. If you're interested in this kind of thing, there's a fascinating article that we're going to read as a team tomorrow. I hope the team are looking forward to it. By a guy called Alan Stibbs, a great theologian from the last century, called The Meaning of Blood in Scripture. He traces blood through the whole of the Bible and concludes that when you see blood in the Bible, it doesn't just mean life, it doesn't just mean death, it means life violently and often sacrificially ended. Now, in the context, this must be a reference back to the Passover lamb that we read about earlier. Remember, we know from the beginning of chapter 6 that we saw last week, this is happening at the time of the Passover itself. That's very much the context. We've been talking at great lengths about the manna that was provided during the Exodus, just after the Passover. And we've seen Jesus revealed in the very miracles he's done as the great Redeemer leading the new Exodus. Earlier in John, Jesus has twice been called the Lamb of God. Now, in the first exodus, the Passover lamb was pretty crucial, if you know the story. The one thing that's pretty clear is that the lamb is important. He has to be absolutely perfect. The family had to take him in to raise him. And then we saw just now, as it was read from Exodus chapter 12, he had to be killed. Secondly, they had to eat all of his flesh. And thirdly, his blood had to be smeared all over the door. It's crucial to the story because it's how God redeems his people. It's how he does it. How the Redeemer redeemed. And Jesus' point this morning is that the second exodus, well, it's no different to the first in this regard. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just as the Israelites, we must eat the flesh of our Passover lamb. That's Jesus' point. Just as their lamb, well, he dies in our place as our substitute. And just as his shed blood put all over the doorpost was their only hope, So Jesus' shed blood is our only hope as we look to the future. You can imagine, aren't you a Jewish child, the firstborn child in the house, feeling pretty nervous as it got to 11.55 the day before the Passover. Is this really going to work? He's sitting there, he's gone to bed, his dad's told him it's going to be all right. He comes down maybe, peers out the window, has a little look at the blood. Is it really there? Is it really there? 11.57, 58, 59... I imagine it's pretty tense. But in the end, God's provision works. 
The Passover works gloriously. God saves his people and he rescues them from what they deserve. It's a glorious and a wonderful truth. And what's his death achieved back in John? Well, verse 54, eternal life. What does that mean? Well, it's very specific, being raised up on the last day, given real life, not dying, as we saw earlier on in the chapter, given life, inclusion in that wonderful and amazing kingdom that Jesus will bring on his return. But it does raise a pretty important question for us this morning. What does it mean to feed on his flesh? If that's how we get eternal life, what on earth does that mean? Well, may I say, it's not a reference to the Lord's Supper here. Many down the years have taken it to be such, and they've come up with lots of strange ideas as a result of what happens as we take the Lord's Supper together whenever we do that. Now, in the context, to feed on Jesus must mean to believe in him, mustn't it? Jesus here is changing the metaphor slightly, not switching to talk about reality. He's done it to show the extraordinary link between his death and the Passover. He's not doing it to allude to the Lord's Supper. A number of reasons why. We'll cover some of them just briefly. Notice the different words he uses here. He talks about his flesh. He doesn't talk about his body as he will later do, as he institutes the Lord's Supper. A small difference, but if Jesus is really seeking to allude to this, then it would make sense if he used the same words. But more importantly, look at the parallels. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. But verse 46, truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's as clear as it could be that feeding on his flesh here doesn't mean taking the Lord's Supper regularly. It means believing in Jesus. It's a metaphor, a picture for trusting Jesus. But not just trusting Jesus. We've seen the metaphor changes for a reason to draw our minds back to the Passover, to think about the death that needs to occur for salvation, for rescue, for redemption. And his death, Jesus has told us, is as that Passover lamb, in our place, as our substitute. It rather clarifies the call, doesn't it? Jesus isn't just saying, come and believe in me. He's saying, come and trust my death, just as that child did at 11.59, as your only hope to be rescued. And if anyone will, well, look what he says, anyone, theirs is eternal life. But as we look around today, there are many people who haven't done that, aren't there? Many of our family and our friends who haven't done that yet. And lots of them may have been to loads of different events. They may have heard the gospel explained lots and lots of times. We may have spoken to them for hour after hour after hour about the Lord Jesus, about Jesus as the Redeemer even. They may even have read large parts of the Bible themselves. But they just don't believe. Well, secondly, we need to see that only those drawn by the Father will come. You see, we think this is a new thing. We think when our friends don't believe in Jesus, we must be doing something wrong. Maybe we've got the message wrong. Maybe we're not explaining it very clearly. Or secondly, maybe we think, 
Well, we're just coming into a particularly hardened generation. That's what's happening. But you see here in John chapter 6, it was exactly the same in Jesus' day. All the way through the passage, we're pointed to people who don't believe in Jesus. They see him, of course they do. They're standing right there, in front of him, in the synagogue. He's sitting just there. Of course they see him, but they don't believe. Two groups in particular, the crowd in verse 30. They just enjoyed the most remarkable picnic, remember? We know they're the same people who yesterday were fed with that small boy's packed lunch. And there's no indication here that any of them thought it was a hoax. Now, we know they concluded that this showed Jesus to be the prophet who was to come. This showed him to be an extraordinary powerful man. They certainly recognised the miracle. But what do they do? Well, they ask him for a sign that they might believe. It's, it's almost comic, isn't it, as we look at what they say? Give us some proof, Jesus. It's a bit like, I imagine, going to the passport office when you arrive. Not the office, the check-in line. I don't know what it's called. When you get in, land at the airport, you have to form those long lines, depending on which country you're in and how efficient the systems are. You have to form long lines to go in and prove your identity. Imagine they ask you for your passport, your driving license, your ID card. You show them all of that, and then they say, could we have the proof, please? You'd be outraged, wouldn't you? You'd think, come on, I've just shown you all of that proof. Could I show you any more? It's just unbelief, stubborn unbelief. They've seen, they've seen a lot, but they don't believe. Then later, the Jews, they don't believe either, verse 41. Probably the Jews here is a reference to the leaders in the synagogue rather than Jews generally. We meet them in verse 41, as I just said, as they doubt the sincerity of his words. Now remember, we are now back in Galilee, which is the area Jesus is from originally. And this causes a bit of a problem for the Jews. Verse 42, they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The point is they knew his dad. They were at university together, maybe. Maybe they were members of the same tennis club. Maybe their kids went to the same school. We don't know. But the point is they'd watched Jesus grow up in their mate's house, in their friend's house. They'd seen him in the ancient equivalent of nappies. And they wonder, how can he now say, how can he now say, he's come down from God? Their experience... Well, it makes them doubt his words. Look down to verse 52. You see them make a second appearance in our passage today. This time doubting the plausibility of his words. I know he's said it, they're saying. But can it really be possible? It's probably unlikely that they actually think he's talking about cannibalism here. That doesn't seem particularly probable at all in a polite setting like that. But even still, they just don't understand. That's the problem. So they don't believe. Now, we might think they've got a point, maybe, to some extent. But John wants us to be clear, this isn't an unbiased weighing of the evidence. Look how he describes what they do in verse 41. It's very significant. So the Jews grumbled. 
Grumbling is something we tend to think of as an acceptable thing for older people to do. We've got a programme about it in England called Grumpy Old Men. It's rather worrying because I already find it slightly amusing, which doesn't bode well for me. But the prime example of grumbling in the Bible is again in the Exodus story. Isn't that interesting? As just before God feeds his people the manna, and just afterwards, we're told they grumble against God. They look to their present experience, they look to the things they can see, well, and they rebel against God. And you see these Jews here, thousands of years later, well, they do exactly the same thing. Notice again, it's straight after this miraculous feeding in the wilderness. They see him, but they just don't believe. I wonder how many times have you been told by someone, okay, okay, if only Jesus, if he comes down and appears right in front of me right now, well then I'll believe in him. I wonder how many times you've been told that by different people. I've been told it a lot. But do we see that that just isn't the case? Jesus himself says as much, doesn't he, to the people there and then and to us today. Look back to verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Why is it? Well, because they haven't been drawn by the Father. Now to some of our ears, I'm aware that sounds pretty shocking. I know it does. We're thinking, what about my free will? What about my right to choose? Does this mean we're all just sort of robots, moving around, doing God's every will and command? Well, the Bible is clear that that isn't true. We're all held thoroughly responsible for our actions and our decisions in the Bible. But at the same time, Jesus, well, he couldn't be any clearer, could he, here, that God is ultimately still in control of everything. And that very much includes our response to Jesus. Notice he puts it first positively and second negatively here. Firstly, positively, verse 37 to 40. Verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will I never cast out. Now, you don't have to be around for very long before you meet in life pretty confident people, do you? I've met a couple of extraordinary confident people I thought I'd tell you about. A student last year in Durham who assured me as a fact that he would play professional Premier League football before he was 25. I had a friend at university who was so confident in his academic ability that he once got an essay back and he only scored 68%. He was outraged, absolutely outraged. He actually booked an appointment with the tutor. He went in and he said, you must have made a mistake to his tutor. I cannot have only got 68%. Bizarre conversation. It was only afterwards that he actually realised he'd sat there the whole time wearing a T-shirt across the front of which, in big letters, was written the word arrogant. It's extraordinary. Can't quite believe it actually happened, but it did. A friend of mine at university. But none of these people even compare to the confidence the Lord Jesus shows here, do they? And notice Jesus' confidence is in the face of all the evidence. We've just seen people all around him aren't believing. They're seeing, but they're not believing. And yet Jesus can categorically say here, all the Father gives me will come to me. They will come. It's a cert. 
And they'll come because, verse 39, it's part of the Father's will. Ultimately, all those who come will do so according to the will of the Father. But what happens after we come? That's the question Jesus is concerned with here. Might we fall away from God? Might sin or Satan or the world come in and snatch us away? No, Jesus is crystal clear that can't and that won't happen. And he should know. You see, it's his job. Look at verse 37. He tells us, doesn't he, in verse 37, when I can find it, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What an assurance that is. I will never cast out. Now, many of us will know that in principle to be true, but how can we really be sure that no matter what we do, no matter how we act toward him in our life now, he won't cast us out once we've come to him? Well, verse 38 to 40, he gives us the reason we can be confident, and it's wonderful. You see, it all rests on his obedience to his father. Verse 38, he came down not to do what he wants, what his will is, but God's will. And what was God's will? Well, verse 39, that he would lose none of all those the Father has given to him. Think about what that means. That means if Jesus casts us out, or if he allows us to be lost, well then either it's because he is incapable of keeping us, something has arisen more powerful than him, that's just ridiculous of course, or because he's decided to disobey his Father's will. If you're worried that might be the case, well, I suggest you go and look at how far his obedience to the Father actually took him. Look at the nail marks in his hands to see how willing he is to be obedient to his Father. Now, we can be sure that we will be kept until the last day. We will be raised up because it depends entirely on Jesus' obedience to his Father. He puts it positively. Secondly, though, he also puts it negatively. It's the flip side of the same truth. If all those given by the Father to the Son will come to him, well, then it stands that verse 44, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It puts all the emphasis on the Father again, doesn't it? It was his will that gave people to Jesus, and it's he that draws people. I reckon this is pretty humbling for us this morning, isn't it? I don't know how you first came to know Jesus. I don't know how it happened in your life. Please come and tell me. I'd love to hear afterwards. But if you do, a quick warning. I'm actually going to know the answer before you even open your mouth, aren't I? You came because the Father drew you. Through all those situations and circumstances you faced in your life, no matter how hard or hard or difficult to explain, the Father was drawing you. How did he do it? What's the common thread in all our testimonies? Well, his word, ultimately in Jesus. That seems to be the point of verses 45 to 46, but I think we'll think more about his word next week. Now, it might be you're sitting here thinking, great, I'm off the hook. I'm just not chosen. It's not my fault. There is nothing that I can do about it. But I want to ask, how do you know that you're not? You see, Jesus can say at the same time, can't he? Verse 44, 
only those drawn will come. And then verse 47, just two verses later on, three, my math is awful, issues an open call to everyone to come and believe. Now the point still stands, only those drawn by the Father will come in the end. But from our point of view, from your point of view, well, just come and believe, and then you'll know that you were drawn. If you've never done that before, if you're a guest here and you've never come to Jesus to put your trust in him and in his death, to trust the living bread who came from heaven to give his life for you, for me, and for everyone, well, today would be a wonderful time to do that, wouldn't it? Please come and chat to me or chat to someone else after. We'd love to help you do that. But as we draw to a close, two challenges for the rest of us. The first, what do we rely on? What is it that sustains us in our Christian lives? What keeps us going? Now, we're not thinking here primarily about what's going to get us up out of bed tomorrow morning, although it should be looking to Jesus that helps us do that. Now, I'm talking about our spiritual lives. What sustains us as Christians? There are lots of good things in the Christian life, aren't there? Things that as Christians we're called to be involved in and work very, very hard at. Our small groups, our relationships with people there, the fun that we have. Opportunities to serve at church, responsibilities to take on. Maybe a husband or wife to lovingly serve in every way. And all these are great. All these are good. As long as they help us lean on the Lord Jesus and not on anything else. He is the bread of life. He is our staple food. He is the one we cannot do without. We've seen it is he that sustains us and his death that redeems us. And isn't the danger that slowly over time we stop looking to him so much and we start just going through the motions a little bit? The state of our Christian life, well, it becomes dependent on other things. I think of one family at the church I was involved with once who only seemed to come on a Sunday when they were on the rota to serve. Now, I don't want to judge. I have no idea what the situation was there. But it does raise the question, what were they relying on to keep them going in the Christian life? What is it that's keeping our Christian lives going? A complete dependence on the Lord Jesus and on his death, the bread of our lives? Or is it just routine? An obligation. It's a graphic picture. He should literally be the bread we feed on and the bread we depend on every day. Someone should be able to look at my life and say, Rob is someone who simply could not do without the Lord Jesus. Now I wonder honestly how many people would say that of me. Secondly though, how sure are we? You see, I talk to Christians all the time. Christians younger than me, and Christians much older than me, much wiser and more mature. And many admit to harbouring serious doubts about what will happen on the day that we die, on the day that we meet the Lord Jesus. It's great that I believed once, we think, as I look at my life, but now I see so little fruit. I seem to rely on Jesus less and less each day. My life seems completely dominated by other things. Surely I'm not really good enough for his kingdom. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, as we've read through the passage this morning, but it's absolutely full of promises. 
We read them as commands to come and believe, and that's not wrong. But as we really look at them, do you see their promises? Once in verse 29, Jesus gives us a direct call to come and believe. But then eight times through the passage, he reassures us of what will happen if we do. Verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever comes to me shall never thirst. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in me should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And this means if you're here today, and you would say now, at this moment in time, that you're trusting the death of the Lord Jesus, well then your future is absolutely certain. And you can be completely confident of entry into that kingdom on that day Jesus returns. It's a promise. A certain promise for us to cling to this morning. Jesus will do it. Remember, it's his job. Only lack of power. Only a decision to disobey his father can change our future. What's our sin and our failure to prioritise Jesus rightly in the face of the promises he has made? and his job description. Now Jesus, he is the great redeemer, leading the great and glorious new exodus. We saw that last week together, didn't we? And today we've seen how he's going to do it. As by dying, he gives up his life. As the Passover lamb, dying in our place, providing flesh and blood for us. And he's done that so that we might have eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning for the Lord Jesus again. We thank you that he is indeed our Redeemer, that he is the living bread, come down from heaven, and that he gave his flesh for the life of the world. Father, thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for causing us to come to Jesus. Thank you that as we do, we have every confidence and certainty for the future. Father, we pray that we would be those who rely on the Lord Jesus, who indeed come to him each day as the living bread we rely on and depend on. And we pray that you might keep us trusting him and keep us continuing in the Christian life until the day he returns. And we ask it for his sake. Amen.